Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's Kids Safe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. <laughs> Download the Zigazoo app today. Land.com can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own and do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with the family you want. Just know that getting your own piece of land is something that can generate memories for generations, but also has the ability to generate income in both the near and long term. Like if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound. Go to Land.com and check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Enough dreaming about it. Land.com is a place to find and invest in in your open space. See new things. Try new things. Go back centuries while living in the moment. Forge new paths while discovering old ones. Pedal, paddle, and paint while trekking, tasting, and tailoring experiences that transform you into a better version of yourself. Immerse yourself in the world by activating your mind, your heart, and your body on a river cruise exclusively from Avalon Waterways. Save with limited time offers at AvalonWaterways.com. Avalon is cruising. Elevated. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep. On March 17, 1997, two armed and masked men robbed a bank in St. Louis, Missouri, and fatally shot a security guard named Richard Heflin in the process. As part of their plan to destroy evidence and evade capture, they had pre-soaked the getaway van with gasoline. But before they got to switch from the van to a second getaway vehicle, the van caught fire. One assailant, Norris Holder, was arrested at the scene, but the second assailant escaped and was described as a black man about 5'9 with singed hair and an injured right hand. Norris Holder told investigators that the escapee was named John, but later changed that name to Bill. Police arrested an acquaintance of Holder's named Billy Allen. Other than being black, Billy did not match the initial descriptions, but curiously was somehow identified by four witnesses, including Holder. Imagine being selected for this jury and hearing investigators testify about an alleged confession, as well as that four witnesses, including the only other assailant, identified Billy Allen. You might feel pretty confident in your verdict. Yet here we are, almost a quarter century later, to publicly reveal for the very first time case-breaking exculpatory evidence from the state's own files that was ignored by both the prosecution and the defense. Did I mention they sentenced him to death? This is Wrongful Conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today, we're going to do something I don't think we've ever done before. 
which is that we're covering a federal death penalty case. And we're honored, I'm honored, to have Professor Mark Howard, leader of the Making an Exoneree program at Georgetown. So Mark, welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Great to be back, Jason. Thanks. And with Mark is his distinguished co-professor, who has also been on the podcast before more than once for the right and the wrong reasons. Marty Tankliff was wrongfully convicted himself and served 17 years uh, when Marty was wrongfully convicted of murdering his parents. And of course, he's been exonerated and we've become great friends. And he also is Mark's childhood friend and the co-professor now at Georgetown of the Making an Exoneree program. So Marty Tankliff Esquire, <laughs> welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you. You know, the fact that we're all here today is a beautiful thing, but it's also an extremely troubling thing because we're here today to talk about Billy Allen, who has been on death row in the federal system for a quarter of a century now, ever since he was 19 years old. I appreciate you, you know, you all taking an interest in my story and wanting to tell it. Well, Billy, yours is a story that definitely needs to be told. So welcome to the show. But before we get into all the details, I'd love to hear about your life before this horrible scenario took place. You know, I grew up in a house with three sisters on the north side of St. Louis, which was, I guess you can say, flooded with drugs, a lot of violence and stuff like that. Even though I lived in the underprivileged neighborhood, I went to school in a privileged neighborhood. Clayton, Missouri is considered probably one of the wealthiest places in Missouri. You know, no matter if I go out to the Clayton School District and I'm around rich people, I still have to deal with my surroundings when I come home. You're like, where do I fit in in things? It sounds like you had a foothold in these two sort of opposite worlds of haves and have-nots, which sounds like it could be pretty confusing. So after you graduated high school and leading up to March of 97, what were you up to? To be honest with people, you know, I was hustling at the time. You know, I wasn't a big drug dealer or anything like that. I was just hustling at the time. But at the same time, I was trying to find my way at the time. And that's why I met the, you know, the girl I ended up with who I was going to move in with, you know, because basically I was going to get a job, stop selling drugs, and just, I guess you can say, start my growth. Not only for her, but she had a daughter, so I was trying to be better for all of them. So you were at a crossroads, and it sounds like you were choosing a more promising path, but your connection to the old neighborhood happened to bring you into contact with one of the actual bank robbers in this case, Norris Holder. You had met him through Job Corps once and then had a chance encounter with him years later. Apparently, you had sold him some weed once or vice versa. And it was this chance meeting and short-lived hangout just a, just a few days before Holder committed this crime that even put you into the realm of possibilities. I mean, how well did you even know this Holder guy? Well, I didn't know Holder per se. I guess you can say the way they tried to, you know, sell the story to my jury. When I was at a club one day, Holder, I knew one of his friends he was with, you know, just from my neighborhood. And so, you know, we ended up just talking. So he's like, hey, look, you know, let's hook up one day, just being cordial with people. Plus, like I said, I knew the guy he was with. Then a few days, you know, later, I get a call from him, you know, basically like, hey, man, you know, I'm going to go to the mall. And, you know, I got some weed. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm, I'm, I'm in now. But for them to make it seem like we were friends, we were plotting this crime or anything like that, how can you say that, that I would in, involve myself in a, you know, in a crime of this magnitude with somebody I didn't even know? 
Right. It doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of sense until you consider the investigators in this case, one of whom, Joseph Nickerson, is on the St. Louis DA's do not testify list, which is, by the way, exactly what it sounds like. He's not allowed to testify in cases because he lies so much. He's the detective, by the way, from another egregious wrongful conviction case out of St. Louis, Lamar Johnson, who is still awaiting justice. And Lamar also did some drug dealing, as did Billy, so they were typical targets for this Nickerson guy. In Lamar's case, Nickerson fabricated a narrative from alleged witness statements, but these witnesses later denied saying any of the things Nickerson had attributed to them, so, you know, just just sat around just making shit up. He perjured himself to make Lamar's culpability even plausible, and then there's a cash-incentivized eyewitness who was convinced by investigators that the masked gunman in this case was Lamar Johnson. So he went along with the ID, which you'll see in a a bit, sounds eerily similar to what happened in this case. Now, I believe his partner, a guy named Carol, is actually doing time now for assaulting someone who was in custody. So it's patterns like these that give a helpful context to what happened in Billy's case. So let's get to that. The morning of March 17th, 1997, where were you, actually, that that fateful morning? I had left the house early that morning, like at 8 o'clock in the morning. They claimed that I had called Holder and told him, let's get ready for the crime and all this stuff from the house. But how can I call you from the house when I'm already gone? You know, so I get to the mall early in the morning, and my first stop is to the hat zone. I went to Foot Locker, and I went to another store at Foot Quarters, and right after that, I went to Famous and Bar, which is a clothing store. I went to this tuxedo place, and so as I'm shopping, basically, I see Chris Chagog. Now, Chris Chagog is a security guard who was at the mall to pick up his paycheck. He was like, hey, I'm just going to pick up my check, and then I plan to go to another mall to do some shopping and stuff like that. So I'm like, well, can I ride with you? I was like, look, I just got to drop a few items off to a girl I was dating. And so he was like, okay. So he went to pick up his check and we left the mall. And I dropped off a few items for her baby and basically gave her some money because we were moving in together and left. So you'd been out of the house since 8 a.m. at the mall where you visited several stores, made several points of contact. And I'm talking about people who were disinterested alibi witnesses, people who didn't know you. And there was also surveillance footage. So all the great alibi evidence that places you away from the scene at the time of the crime, none of it was investigated or later presented on your behalf. So while you were shopping across town, there was this bank robbery going on at the Lindell Bank and Trust, which is catty corner from this huge park in St. Louis that houses the St. Louis Zoo, several museums, landmarks, a golf course, a skating rink, and this area is known as Forest Park. Again, this is March 17th, 1997, around 10.35 a.m., when two masked and armed men busted down the door and told everybody to get on the ground. There were two bank robbers who stole $50,000 and a security guard named Richard Heflin was killed in the process of that robbery. And then the two men left the scene in a getaway van, drove to Forest Park, and they had a plan apparently to set the van on fire and then get away in a different vehicle that they planted there. But the van had actually been pre-soaked in gasoline and exploded and caught on fire inside the park before sort of the full extent of their plan and getaway plan could work. And so the driver, a guy named Norris Holder, was still on fire himself and was pulled out of the car. And then the second suspect ran away. So 
Holder was in custody almost immediately, and I've listened to the dispatch tapes from that morning. It sounds pretty chaotic, but ultimately, it sounds like a team of folks trying to bring the bank robbers and murderers of this bank security guard to justice. And this is so important. Every one of them described a black male about 5'8 to 5'10 wearing gray sweats and a blue and red colored jacket. And they said he had singed hair, understandably, since the van was on fire, and an injured right hand. They never described a person with a beard. And I had a beard at the time. So if I was a person who walked up to you and asked you for directions, wouldn't that be one of the most descriptive things you can point out about an individual? Had it actually been you, they would have mentioned a beard, right? That's a, that's a pretty big detail for everybody to leave out. But they did not say that. They also would have said over 6'2 instead of around 5'9. Big difference there. 6'2 is tall. 5'9, most people would say, is short for a man. And when you were eventually picked up, your right hand was not injured and your hair was not burned in any way. So if you listen to all of the dispatch tapes as we did, the story remains the same in the immediate aftermath. The assailant came over a hill from the direction of the burning van. He went toward the fence line and allegedly told them that his van caught fire and he needed to get to the Metrolink. Both park workers, you know, when they first came forward, they claimed that all they did was gave him directions to the Metrolink. The thing about it is, when we get to trial, both park workers change their story. They claim they gave the person a ride outside of the park. Do you know I have their actual recordings where a police officer is standing right with them, calling in the dispatch? I'm with a forestry division supervisor. The forestry workers saw the second subject. He was running east from the burning van up by a construction trailer that's about 200 yards east of them. They had him right over here by the fence line. There's a hole in the fence. Where was he at exactly when he talked with the caller? Right. These park workers, along with everyone else at this point, were just feeding in whatever they could to help nab this guy. No other agenda. They pointed him in the right direction, and he left, got away, whatever, through a hole in the fence. Importantly, not in someone's car. Giving this assailant a ride outside the park would really make for a much more credible ID, which is why we believe this story changed by the time of trial. But back to the immediate aftermath. Ultimately, the effort to close in on the second assailant was unsuccessful, and they were hoping to get something out of Holder. Yeah, when Holder was arrested, he says the person with him was some guy named John. Then they threatened him with the death penalty and said, hey, look, whoever's the least culpable is who might get leniency in this case. So basically, you need to provide us, you know, with a story, you know, or something that can help us out or help you out. So all of a sudden, he switches from John and he mentions my name. So now he's given them something concrete, a full name, and not just a name that feels chosen at random. That's the thing. He didn't even know my last name. He just said Bill. Just Bill? That's it. I'll show you where, where Bill lives. Now, the thing about the John situation is this. Throughout the reports, there's a person named JB who was connected to Holder. We think JB is his cousin. I can't, you know, I don't want to falsely accuse anybody or anything like that, you know, but that's, this is what the reports are basically saying. 
it's my belief that Holder is using me as a scapegoat to protect somebody who was close to him. So now you had no idea what was coming your way. Did you even know that this bank robbery had taken place? Well, I did see the crime, you know, on the news when they arrested Holder. And so I'm like, okay, well, you know, I'm not involved. And so it doesn't really draw my attention to it. Next thing I know, I'm at the apartment, you know, with the girl I was living with at the time. And I hear some banging on the door. And don't know what the hell's going on or anything like that. FBI and police officers come to my door. They arrest me. And the first thing I tell them, I had the clothes and everything that I had bought on the couch. And I told the officers, look, you're arresting the wrong person. Here are all the items. The receipts are still in the back. The clothes are still in the back. And I'm like, look, just go to the mall and ask to see the surveillance footage. And basically, you'll see that I have an alibi at the time the crime took place. You know, you can't beat a video. And so they were basically just yesing me off. And so they took me down to the homicide office, and that's when I kept repeating the same story. And that they can talk to Chris Chagog, who was a security guard at the time, to find out whether or not I was at the mall. Yeah, but unfortunately, they weren't interested in solving the case. They were interested in fixing the facts to match the name that they got from Norris Holder. So, I mean, I'm using facts very loosely there. So you were arrested around 2 a.m. What happened next? When I was in the homicide office, it's two officers that came and talked to me, a Thomas Carroll and Joseph Nickerson. Now, I told both officers, I'm like, look, you all can go to the mall, you all can get the recordings, and you all can see that I have an alibi. Now, they claim they went to the mall, yet for some reason, there's no surveillance footage that can be found. I believe they have this footage. Because I believe, and here's the thing, I reported about this before the Lamar Johnson case. I reported that they were probably withholding this evidence. And come to find out years later, they withheld recordings of the Lamar Johnson case. So it's like a pattern down there dealing with these officers. A pattern that is unfortunately prevalent in St. Louis and, let's face it, around this whole country, as are alleged false confessions or fabricated statements, which we'll get into in a bit. But first, what happened in that interrogation room? When I first came in, and as they reported in their reports, you know, like I told them, look, I didn't have anything to do with the crime. So this is when, you know, both, you know, officers were like, okay, well, if you didn't commit this crime, then give us your DNA. I'm like, sure, shit, I ain't got nothing to do with it. You can have it. When I was in prison, I used to always ask guys who would say they're innocent. One of the first questions I'd say, would you be willing to do a DNA test? And almost... 99.9% of the people who were really innocent said, I will do a DNA test. I will do any forensic test that I can do to prove my innocence. And Billy falls into the category who said, I want to do anything and everything possible. Next thing they do, they say the van, you know, that was used in the crime was soaked in gasoline. You know, so if you don't have any gasoline on your clothes, you know, that can help prove that you weren't there. So I'm like, okay, we're here. You can have all of my clothes. So I willingly gave him my DNA and my clothes. I mean, the fact that this entire case was covered in gasoline, so to speak, and Billy has none on him. They tested the co-defendant. His clothes were, sure enough, every inch of them had gasoline residue on them. Billy had a credible alibi. DNA test results came back negative. They left open the question, whose DNA is it? And that hasn't been pursued, hasn't been shown, but it's certainly not Billy's. So take 
Take us back there, Billy, to the interrogation and ID process. Next thing I know, an FBI agent comes into the room, uh, Agent Jan Hartman. You know, she started reading my rights. This is the first time I was ever read my rights. So I'm like, well, look, I want a lawyer from the court, period. I'm done talking. I, I don't have anything to say. You all aren't going to believe me. So according to her trial testimony, she never told anybody about my request for an attorney. So one officer comes in, he conducted the lineup. I'm like, well, look, you know, where's my attorney at? And he was like, you know, you don't need an attorney for this. I'm like, but I asked for one. He's like, well, you can get one afterwards. So they took me to the lineup. And now here's the crazy part about this lineup. I'm the tallest person in the damn lineup. They have nobody close to 6'2 in this lineup. Nobody who looks like me in this lineup. And to make matters worse, he puts me in position number three. I am the tallest person in this damn thing, and I'm beside the two shortest people inside this. So basically, you're giving people the person you want them to pick. Not only is it suggestive, but it's also telling about the description they had. Exactly. 5'8", five, 5'10". Five, and like our lineups, a lot of people, when they envision lineups, they envision you behind a glass and the witnesses are outside of the thing. The St. Louis, they have a piece of cloth. It's like a black piece of cloth right there. So you can see, you can actually see the damn person who's basically identifying you, you know, and you can hear them. And this is just how hilarious my lineup was. This lady, Alma Gilliam, you know, they were telling her, well, can you identify the person you saw? She picks the person in position number two. Now, if you look at this person in my lineup photo, this dude has a freaking full beard. He looks nothing like me. And he fits the description that she gave of the person she saw at the crime. So now I hear this guy, he comes on and says, hey, look, we think it's the guy in position number three. Can we bring him forward? And you look at him. She was like, are you sure? He was like, yeah. So they told the number two guy go back. They take me out of the lineup. And she was like, yeah, I think you might be right. Wow. If you go to my transcripts, she will tell you she picked the guy in position number two. So why would you pick somebody 5'8", full beard, full head of hair, and yet, all of a sudden, you switch your account to somebody 6'2", small beard at the time. So come to find out, you know, in the dispatch tape, she actually is reporting that she couldn't even describe the person she saw. This is on their own recordings. My attorney didn't find it. It was never presented on my defense or anything. But yet, this woman was allowed to pick somebody in position number two who was clearly different than I was. And then basically come to court, change her story, claim that she never told the officers that, and then we have the recordings to prove that the prosecutors presented false testimony. And this wasn't the only time the prosecutors knowingly put on false testimony in this case, nor was it the last time that one of the quote-unquote eyewitnesses picked someone out when they had no business doing so because they admitted not having seen the assailant, like the guy who had followed the van from the bank to the park, William Green. William Green walked in the room. Like I said, you can clearly hear what the person is telling the, you know, talking to the witnesses. He comes in the door and he tells them, look, I can't identify anybody. You know what the officer tells him? Just pick anybody. And that's exactly what he does. He just, he just did a random pick. He never picked me. But why would you even take that chance? The same reason we have to remind people that Black Lives Matter, as well as why that statement is ever met with any pushback. Exactly. I know for a fact my life didn't matter. When you're going through that, when you're sitting in this situation and you're hearing these things going on, you're like, man, what, what did I do to deserve this? Why are these people doing what they're doing? 
when basically everything shows that they're lying. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. So you have two witnesses who admitted in front of you that their identifications were entirely invalid. And then you have these two park workers who said that they gave the assailant a ride and that the assailant was not wearing a mask so they got a good look. As we already pointed out, the dispatch tapes proved that these two accounts were also lies. They were standing there with the police saying that they had pointed the assailant toward the Metrolink. Exactly. But my attorney never presented this recording. I found the recordings a couple of years ago. So I just found out about them because I kept telling everybody, I'm like, look, I know these guys are lying. They were, you know, everybody was like, well, we, you know, you have to prove it. So I knew um, they had turned over these dispatch tape transcripts, but they only gave me six pages. Do you know the actual recording is over an hour and a half long? My producer transcribed these tapes. The 90-minute segment you're talking about comes out to 39 pages, and that's with the artificial intelligence transcriber missing a lot of the actual words. So basically, they withheld the fact that they knew that both park workers were lying. That, or they were counting on your attorney not doing his job. So we already heard about Alma Gillian and William Green. So what happened when these park workers walked into the lineup room? When William Green didn't pick me out, the officer walked, you know, William Green out, and you see the two park workers. I literally, when they opened the door, you can see the two park workers standing side by side, and they were like, look, you know, we think it's the guy in position number three. Before they even walk into the room, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, it's the guy in position number three. And the officer tells them, no, you all have to come in and identify him so we can put it on record. So they come in and pick me in position number three. That's how they got me. So this total sham identification procedure where all the witnesses are ready and willing to help out the boys in blue with whatever they need, plus Norris Holder, who's incentivized to try to avoid the death penalty, even though that ended up backfiring for him, this is essentially, that's all they had against you. All the other evidence, or let's call it what it is, the actual evidence, told a totally different story. They tested Holder's clothes for traces of gasoline. I'm talking about the shoes, his socks, his pants, his shirt, his T-shirt, everything he had on came back positive for traces of gasoline. I gave you my clothes. Not a single trace of gasoline was found on anything. And they knew that as well as that you didn't match any of the physical descriptions. You didn't have the injury to your right hand that was described by the witnesses, an injury that would have explained the blood left behind on the strap to a bulletproof vest. It was tested for both yours and the victim's DNA, both negative. Yet still, somehow, some way, they chose to believe Holder and basically rig the ID process. But they didn't stop with just one fix. Your attorney could have found all of this evidence, so they needed some more, right? You know, they wanted me to confess to the crime, and I told them I don't have anything to do with this crime. So you maintained your innocence throughout, 
you were quote-unquote ID'd in that fixed lineup. But now, when you're going to trial, you receive discovery. Next thing I know, I read a report a few days later, basically saying that I confessed to the crime. There's, get this, not a single piece of evidence to show that a confession ever took place. Well, to me, it's a perfect example of a larger phenomenon that we know well, which is that when there's this pressure to close a case, they start making shit up. So they feel like they need a little bit more on Billy Allen. So, hey, he confessed. Well, where's the evidence of this confession? Was it recorded? No. Were there notes? Uh, yes. Okay, then where are the notes? Uh, we don't have them anymore. We lost them. We threw it away. I mean, come on. That's just bullshit. Beginning, middle to end. They didn't even say they lost it, which would have like, a ton, yeah. <laughs> you know, they said they threw it away. So, yeah, I mean, they threw away the only evidence that they had that this alleged confession ever took place. Yeah, no, I'm not. Um, I'm not really. Yeah, usually they say it was lost in a flood. We've heard that in a number of cases. Yeah, we had it, but it was lost in a flood. Uh, in this case, they say, no, we threw it away. They claim that after the lineup, I demanded to speak to a Lieutenant Henderson because I allegedly knew him from a previous case. The previous case they mentioned is a friend of mine. He was murdered. We were the victims in that case. And basically, they so they used my friend's murder to say that I confessed to this black officer because I knew him and I trusted him. Now, I kept telling my lawyers, I'm like, I don't even know this guy. One thing I do know is that when my friend was killed, there wasn't one black officer that came to that crime scene that day. So basically, I'm telling my lawyer to look for this police report so I can prove that they, you know, manufactured this lie. He never finds it. I find this myself a few years later. And come to find out, Henderson didn't even work that day. So how can I ask to confess to somebody that I never even met before? But we were never able to confront him with that. There was a lot of bullshit slinging at your trial and a near total abdication of duty by your defense attorney who could have done so much more with what was available to him to discredit this horrendous lie that perhaps even the jury saw through, but they most definitely were not provided with what they needed to see the real truth in this case. I mean, let's face it, the very least he could have done was present the negative gasoline residue and DNA test results. That would have had a big impact on the jury. I mean, the fact that he didn't even highlight this, didn't even make it part of his case, part of his defense. A government forensic expert even testified at trial saying that anyone who had been in that van would have had gasoline present on their clothing. Yet, he just didn't seize that moment. Probably because he hadn't done his freaking homework or he would have known to do it. I mean, this any first-year law student would have known to do that. And then there's all these different eyewitness discrepancies Right. And as we've mentioned, there were four alleged eyewitness IDs. And considering the dispatch tapes and interview recordings that were available to him, more could have been done to impeach all of them. Two of the eyewitnesses, after all, said on the tapes that they were unable to identify the perp on top of what they said and did at the lineup. Then you've got these two park workers saying that they gave the assailant a ride and identified Billy, but your attorney should have researched and pointed out that that testimony was contradicted by what they had said in their initial statements via the dispatch tape. He didn't present one piece of evidence on my behalf. He cross-examined these witnesses, though. That's it. Didn't present not a single shred of all the evidence I found that he had access to. He didn't even look for it. So, not having done the preparation, his cross-examination, among other things, fell predictably short. His public defender did an unconscionably poor job, didn't seek any 
confirmation of Billy's alibi, just sort of let it go? To me, I mean, you think about it, somebody goes shopping in a very public place. The first thing you're going to do is have an investigator go to every single store, speak to people, get videos, try to find witnesses down. Right. I mean, there could have been receipts from the mall, security footage, which instantly would have cleared Billy. And he didn't do anything and didn't make any attempt to obtain that. And now, of course, it's far too late. Of course, there was a security guard that gave him a ride as well. Chris Chagag. How do you not present him or look into when he picked up his paycheck? There would have certainly been a record that showed that this took place at the time of the crime, which would have cleared Billy. But none of this was done. Norris Holder identified you in an effort to save himself and his actual partner in crime from death row. Little good that ended up doing for him anyway, though. And meanwhile, there's the first person that he named whose name was John. This is another lead that could have and should have been developed. But beyond the leads that could have been developed, there was everything that was already available that Billy has been able to use to prove that the witnesses and the police were lying. Which makes this all so unbelievable that this ever even made it to trial. Yeah, all the evidence that I'm presenting on my behalf is in their own files. So they knew that when they presented this testimony, when they concocted this story and claimed all these things, they had their actual reports that showed something other than what they were actually testifying to. So it wasn't like it was just a lie concocted by the officers. The prosecutors basically allowed them to tell these lies because they had these files with them when they put these people on the stand. Yeah, you'd think that would make them eligible for attempted murder. And perhaps your trial attorney could be and should be considered for criminal negligence. Because without the defense you needed, the jury was left with this pack of lies and not much else. And before we go to this trial's inevitable conclusion, I want to talk about this. This really makes me sick. This electric stun belt that Billy was made to wear throughout the proceedings. What in the actual fuck is up with that? I don't have words, Jason. I don't know. It's part of the dehumanizing, degrading process that I think often happens to different degrees. This is extreme to scare jurors into viewing somebody as being you know, responsible and perhaps worthy, so to speak, of getting the death penalty. My thing was, you know, a lot of times you want to stand up. You know, you want to tell them, you know, object or you want to, you know, yell out, hey, your honor, I'm innocent. Or you want to yell out to the jury or you want to stand up and, you know, kind of defend yourself, especially when you're not being defended by your attorney. You know, but the thing about the marshals, they were like, look, if you make any quick movements, we're going to push the button. Freaking 20,000 volts or 50,000. I don't even remember how many volts this thing is. I don't know, man. I felt even more imprisoned because I couldn't say anything. I couldn't do anything. They were essentially treating you like cattle. And by the way, that's not even the way cattle should be treated. Exactly. You have to realize I wasn't called Billy Allen. I was called a murderous dog by my prosecutor. My jury was never allowed to basically see the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. They got half of a story that was concocted by officers that could have easily been disputed with evidence. And so that's why I'm kind of hoping that this platform allows my jury to hear this stuff and say, hey, you know what? I think I made a mistake. Did you have any hope that they were going to see that at the time? Um, no. Honestly, I told my mom, and this is the sad part about it. Um, I told my mom right before the verdict, I said, look, I'm going to get found guilty. She was like, no, don't say that. I said, look, mom, my lawyer isn't going to present a defense. So don't be surprised 
I prepared my mom emotionally and prepared my family to accept the fact that I was going to get found guilty. I accepted it. You know, and then here's the thing. I wasn't mad at my jury. I was more mad at my defense attorney for him not defending me and proving to them that I was innocent. So I wasn't mad at them because if I were to sit on that jury, I would have to find a person guilty. There was nothing I could do. Land.com can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own and do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with the family you want. Just know that getting your own piece of land is something that can generate memories for generations, but also has the ability to generate income in both the near and long term. Like if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound. Go to Land.com and check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Enough dreaming about it. Land.com is a place to find and invest in in your open space. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity, and it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. From the moment I got locked up, that started my mission to prove my innocence. One, because when I went into court, you know, the victim's family was there. And I saw people looking at me with so much anger and so much pain and so much hate. And I'm like, I got people hate me when they have the wrong person. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to make it my mission to prove that I'm innocent. And, you know, I made that same promise to my mom. And basically that started my journey where I started reading all the files. I've read every single page, every single sentence, every transcript, everything. And I start putting together this puzzle. And when you see the story that they tell at my trial, and you see all the evidence that they had to, to show something different, you start to ask yourself, why would somebody go this far 
to convict me for something they know I didn't do, where their own evidence proves I'm innocent. So that has been the burden that I've had to carry, you know, in a sense, being innocent. Being innocent is a burden, man. You know, every day you're fighting to live. You're fighting to prove your innocence. You're fighting to convince judges to do the right thing who won't do the right thing. So your first appeal happened in 2001, and it was based on your Fifth Amendment right to be indicted by a grand jury. Essentially, the effort sought to get you off of death row. What's interesting is that his sentence was mixed. So the first count, which was bank robbery in which a killing occurs, he was convicted and got life. On the second, which was using a firearm during and in relation to a federal crime of violence, which resulted in murder, he was convicted and got the death penalty. Then that was appealed by Billy and it was reversed, so commuted to life. But then the state appealed it to the Eighth Circuit and made back to death and put him on death row. But I think the fact that you had these different outcomes just suggests there's something fishy here. And also the fact that the state appealed to get it back on death row just shows how hellbent they are on having the highest possible outcome and win for their case based on what they decided to pursue, which was death penalty. The best predictor of whether somebody is going to get the death penalty is the race of the victim. So having a white victim and black perpetrator, suddenly the odds of prosecutors going for the death penalty shoot up as they did in this case. While we're on the subject of race, in a community that was half white and half black, literally split evenly, somehow or other the jury pool ended up being 10 white jurors. So the prosecutors found all sorts of reasons to strike black people from the jury. And on appeal in 2009, Billy Allen's lawyers sought an evidentiary hearing on the race issue, noting that as of the 12th of May, 2009, of the 460 federal defendants against whom the U.S. Attorney General had authorized federal prosecutors to seek the death penalty, and this will shock no one, but 119 of them were white and 341 were from minority racial or ethnic groups, of whom 237 were black. So I know today, I don't know the percentages then, but it's probably about the same, 13% of the American population is black. And yet, somehow or other, over 50% of the time the death penalty was used, weaponized against people innocent or guilty in the federal system, it was used against black people. And then fully another 104 of those 460 total were people from other minority groups. The direct quote from the government to this incredible statistical evidence was, quote, there are three kinds of lies, lies, damn lies, and statistics. This is so nonsensical. It's like cartoonish, but again, deadly serious. And a judge, of course, ruled that even if the court would agree with Mr. Allen that these statistics amounted to a compelling indictment of the federal government's use of the death penalty against minority defendants, which is basically him almost tacitly acknowledging that it did, he goes on to say the law is nevertheless clear that a defendant cannot make out a selective prosecution claim under the Equal Protection Clause without evidence that there was discriminatory motive to prosecute him in particular. Yeah, so that's the... Uh, lasting legacy of one of the worst Supreme Court decisions in our lifetime, which is 1987 McCleskey versus Kemp, where there was an overwhelming finding that still exists today and statistical pattern that's indisputable that you have an overrepresentation of people of color, particularly African Americans, who are sentenced to death. It's undeniable. And the Supreme Court says, even though that may be true, it will not help any individual 
African-American defendants sentenced to death unless they can show that race was a bias in their particular case. And the only way to show that is basically getting a secret recording of the prosecutor using the N-word or somehow something that would be just so egregious that would be caught on tape. And that, of course, never comes to light. But we know the overall pattern is there. We're letting these biases run rampant. And the Supreme Court, unfortunately, has given a green light to them. And that continues today. Yeah. And while this argument was less about Billy's case in particular and more about the bent of the entire system against Black defendants, it was also one that became more pressing. At the time, there was a moratorium on executions on the federal level that started in 2006, but it was lifted in 2019. The previous occupant of the Oval Office spent the last gasp of his power overseeing the first 17 executions in a generation on the federal level, 16 by lethal injection and one by electrocution. He's the same person who sought to bring the death penalty back in New York State many years ago, seeking the death penalty and execution of several young men that were wrongfully accused in New York City. The Central Park Five. In the Central Park Five, now known as the Exonerated Five. And the fact that Billy Allen bore witness to these executions from his vantage point as one of the long-serving people on death row, in spite of this remarkable body of exculpatory evidence. So Billy also raised claims of ineffective assistance of counsel for the reasons that we've already laid out here. And of course, the gasoline residue and DNA tests that truly do exculpate Billy. Let's face it. I I wrote a letter to my attorney and I framed it this way for a reason. I said, um, basically, I'm about to file an appeal. I located DNA evidence. I located gasoline results. I located all this evidence. Had you known about these things before I went to trial, would you have presented these things on my behalf? And he, in his letter, in his response to me, he specifically says, yes, he would have presented these things had he known about them before trial. Now, here's the thing about it. These things were in the, in the records that he handed over to me. There was no way in hell that my trial was fair when I had an attorney who specifically responded to a letter that had he knew about these things, he would have presented them. But yet he had these things in his possession and never looked for them. Yeah, we've seen some pretty grotesque examples of ineffective assistance of counsel before, but this is a whole new level. But yet, somehow, you were denied on that front as well. All those denials and basically the rejection, it becomes a burden on your shoulders. You know, so that has been my burden for the last few years, you know, trying to find all the evidence. And now that I've found it, I can't get people to listen. What, what, what does it take for people to care? What does it take for situations to change? And to me, I guess that goes to the Georgetown Project. The Georgetown Project, I felt like ignited a hope and a flame that has, you know, basically dimmed over the years. And that was my first introduction, you know, to Mark and Marty and to, you know, the, the, the students at Georgetown. And I asked, you know, I think I asked Mark, I was like, well, what is your process of picking people? And he was like, we go through thousands and thousands of applications and only pick five and yours stood out. And that meant everything to me. And of course, you mean Georgetown's making an exoneree class. And remarkably, it's an undergraduate course. So you don't have to be a law student, a forensic scientist, or a private investigator to look at some of the evidence and say, wait a minute, how did this actually even go forward to trial? How? Much less result in a conviction. 
And Marty, you know, I watched the remarkable video that you and your students put together with the Making Exonery class, of course. And those kids in that class never cease to blow my mind with the amazing, amazing work that they do. Semester after semester, class after class. And of course, their work has led to the actual freeing of four people now, right? I mean, Keith Washington, Valentino Dixon, Eric Riddick. And now Orlando Trey Jones. Right. These kids are doing an absolutely phenomenal job. Some of them have even come to work for us or have gone on to law school working as paralegals on pro bono cases or other nonprofits. They are truly incredible assets to this movement for justice. And I'm so glad that you all landed on Billy's case. Billy's case, to me, there was just a multitude of things that went wrong. Every week that we live, we see another man or woman become exonerated. And what we also see is that something from the original case went wrong. And it was either from the prosecutor, the police's point of view, there was some wrongdoing, forensic misconduct, or incompetent lawyers. And in Billy's case, I think he had a little bit of everything. You know, there was someone else who was seen with Holder planning the bank robbery, but that was just never pursued. There was an anonymous tip that we don't know much more about. We just know that the initials of the suspect are DM. And obviously that's not Billy Allen, DM, but we don't know more and haven't been able to find out more because it's been kept you know, under wraps. But that very well could be the second person who Holder is protecting. There's DM, there's JB, as Billy mentioned, and a whole lot of potential avenues if you could just access these materials. But they've been fighting it every step of the way. Now, there was renewed efforts to test the DNA evidence against other potential suspects, which was the focus of your filings in 2020. Not only is there this bloody strap that excludes you and the victim that they refuse to run through CODIS or test against anyone else. There's also the matter of a damp cloth that was found near the fence where the second suspect escaped from Forest Park. They tested it for DNA and it excluded you, but have since sealed those results. I'm sure if they had matched Billy, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now. So how have those efforts gone thus far? They stopped us every year from the first year. I filed pro se. My lawyers have filed. We've done everything we could to get them to basically do all the testing. And my judge basically is, has refused every single request. And the prosecutor has opposed every form of testing in my case. I can't get nothing tested. If we could test that DNA against other possible suspects, who knows what would come up in this case? But there's such a conspiracy. I mean, that's not too strong a word to say that police and prosecutors have in just sealing tight a conviction, even if it's the wrong one, even if there's evidence that proves that it was a mistake. My case isn't one of those where I'm just asking people to, you know, take a chance on me. I'm asking people to believe in my evidence and fight for me. So that's where this is at right now. And Billy and his team are fighting this on two fronts, trying to get access to those biological materials, as well as seeking a pardon from President Biden. There's a petition among so many other action steps linked in the bio, but go there now. Don't wait. Go to the bio, click on it, sign the petition. And in addition to all of that, there's the Making an Exoneree video. Please check all of it out. We also encourage you to join Billy's supporters this November in Washington, D.C. for a rally. 
You can follow Billy on Instagram. It's free Billy, B-I-L-L-I-E, Allen, A-L-L-E-N. So free Billy Allen to receive updates. And now we go to our closing where, first of all, I thank all of you for joining us. I'm just going to kick back in my chair, turn my microphone off, and just listen for any closing thoughts that you all have. Let's start with Mark, then Marty, and then and then Billy, over to you to close this out. Thanks, Jason. You know, Billy is an extraordinary person. He is warm. He is caring. He is funny. He is compassionate. He is dedicated, hardworking, and he's incredibly talented. And I got to see a lot of his artwork. I actually have some of it now in my office at Georgetown. But Billy is himself a beacon of light and hope for this world. And what I really hope more than anything is that the rest of the world will discover the Billy that I've come to know and love and to recognize his talent and to appreciate his humanity and that hopefully he'll have that opportunity to connect with the world as a free man soon. There's just two things. I want people to understand wrongful convictions is an epidemic. In 2021, we had 173 exonerations that were recognized by the National Register of Exonerations. 2022, we already have 173. Billy should be added to that list in the near future. Our system can't function if we keep convicting innocent people. And when there's evidence that somebody was denied justice, we let them languish in prison day after day after day. The day has to come where Billy gets his day for justice. And I look forward to the day where Mark, myself, our students can be waiting outside of a prison somewhere like we have for four other individuals to watch Billy walk out of prison. I'm not just somebody who's saying they're innocent. You know, I'm somebody who can show you that I'm innocent. And to me, I feel like that should ignite people to say, you know what, let me go to bat for this guy. You know, I'll get, you know, letters from people saying, hey, I'm praying for you. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, I appreciate the prayers, but I need you to speak out, you know, because you need those voices in high places to be able to hear that you do care. And I feel like the the more people who show that they care, the more the system is going to have to care and going to have to give us the testing that we're looking for and allow the evidence to be the thing that motivates you to want to go out there and fight for me, to want to go out there and, you know, every time you're on social media, instead of posting about the new food you're eating, to be able to say, hey, you know what? Free Billy Allen, period. You know, and in November, we'll be going to D.C., you know, to basically do a march on D.C. to present my case. And I'm hoping that people start raising their voice and have an influence when we do file our petition to Biden to be able to make him say, you know what? We're always asking another country to do right by their citizens. We failed this guy right here. Let us do the right thing now and return him to his family. And I guess I'm I'm, I'm going to read you something that I think will help you kind of gather who I am and my journey. And it's called Lone Soldier. I find myself engaged in a conflict that some have deemed to be a battle between good and evil in a desire who they have labeled the latter. This battle was not one where a thunderous roar will be heard, fought about a stench of gun smoke, charred flesh, nor where bloodstains will taint the same brown where footsteps travel to the fro. No, this battle was one that is rooted in the bloodlines and bloodshed that painted the stripes red, and in the blue sky there weighed fifty stars which are at times saluted or draped over the caskets of fallen heroes. 
Now, because I know that there are those who like to take one's word out of context with malicious intent, no, no way am I claiming the role of hero. I'm just one who has been wrongfully imprisoned and who wishes to defend myself against those who have brought this battle to my doorstep. And in doing so, I plan to defend myself against the lies, misrepresentation, and advances that take my life in the pretense of justice. Now, after I expose this injustice, if you then deem my actions to be that of a hero, know that it is I who will not make such a claim. This battle will take place on what many have deemed to be sacred ground, or what some have said to be the foundation of our society without which will cause chaos and leave in its path destruction. And that battleground is the Constitutionist Amendments. To oversee this battle and to ensure that it's conducted without a hint of bias, favoritism, nor that it will be tainted with the temptation of power or financial gain is Lady Justice. Yet to my disbelief, though she is supposed to stand out front as a symbol of fundamental fairness, I could have swore that I saw her tilt the scales of justice in favor of my foes who already have superior power, resources, and who attack without malicious forethought. Though I know that the odds are against me, I do not waver on my stance, and I hold tight to the hilt of my sword of truth and evidence, where my evidence is the material which it has been forged in. I close my eyes, say a prayer, and I can only hope that God hear my pleas as I throw stones at Goliath. And it is I who am the lone soldier. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infinity QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Land.com can help you find that little patch of ground to call your own and do all the hunting, fishing, and hanging out with the family you want. Just know that getting your own piece of land is something that can generate memories for generations, but also has the ability to generate income in both the near and long term. Like if you just want to start a rental business slash family compound. Go to Land.com and check out the hundreds of thousands of rural listings from all across America. Enough dreaming about it. Land.com is a place to find and invest in your open space. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. 
Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences, with fewer people, and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited-time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know... What were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning, it's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN.